Well, thank you again for joining us today. Last week, we saw that in Jesus' final days, uh, before He went to the cross, remember, He has gone into Jerusalem, He has gone into the temple and cleansed the temple, and in His final days, He has been teaching the people, teaching in the temple. That instruction continues in our text today. So we're in our uh, probably last five to six sermons in the Gospel of Luke that we've been walking through. So in the teaching that we see today, some of that comes through his answers to questions that are asked of him. Some of that teaching comes from questions that he asked of the people Some of that comes from warnings and commending that he gives on the way to live. But in all of that, what we're going to see is the wisdom of our Savior. As the divine Son of God, he is perfectly wise. He is completely wise and he teaches us from that wisdom. And so our sermon is titled, The All-Wise Savior. Turn with me to Luke 20. The wisdom that he shares in the temple is wisdom that we need today uh, in our hearts uh, and in our lives. I'm going to read Luke 20, starting in verse 20, and we're going to go through verse 4 of Luke 21. And then I'll pray for us. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They are not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answers, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally... The woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die, because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush 
that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? While the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have given, have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess it as true again, and we ask that you shape us by the truths that we hear. As we hear Jesus' instruction, open our eyes and our mind to the truth and change our lives because of it. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing that we see from this text is this. Jesus teaches us to submit to God's supreme authority. Jesus teaches us to submit to God's supreme authority. He's going to do this through answering a question about taxes. But what he's going to do is try to correct their understanding, correct the way that they approach their life. So let's look at those verses again. Verse 20 through 26 in Luke 20. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said, to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well then, he told told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in the things that... I'm sorry, they were not able to catch him in what he said in public... And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. The they that's mentioned here are the people that we saw last week, if you were here, who uh, were determined to kill Jesus. The scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders uh, are outraged 
because of the things that he's doing. He's overthrown their tables. He's told this parable about uh, the judgment that is coming. And so it's said in the passage two different times that they were looking to get their hands on him. The religious leaders, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so here, they're watching him closely with murderous intent in their hearts. Their desire is to find something that they can do that can finally get rid of this Jesus. And so, not only are they waiting for him to say something, but they're setting a trap in this passage. They're, they're trying to speed the process up. Okay, we've got something that's going to work. So this guy, everybody's saying they think he might be the Messiah. Well, the people thought of the Messiah as someone that's going to come in and overthrow Rome. And so he said, we've got him. We'll ask him about taxes. And then if he says they don't have to pay their taxes because Rome is an oppressive force, then we can turn him in and Rome will get rid of him for us. So that's their thought. And when they ask the question, is it lawful, is it right for us to have to pay taxes to Rome or not, to Caesar or not? Now, they've got a benefit with this trap of a question because, one, if Jesus says, you know what, don't pay your taxes, then they can go right, right to the Roman government, turn him in, and he will be wiped out for being a revolutionary, for speaking treason against the Roman government. But the, the additional benefit, the additional reason this is a trap, if he says, yeah, pay your taxes, the people who are looking for a revolutionary leader, who are looking for someone that's going to overthrow Rome, are hopefully, in their hearts, they're thinking, hopefully the people will at least stop following him. They're going to say, oh, we thought you were the one that was going to get rid of Rome. We didn't know you were going to say we've got to support them. So they ask this question, and of course it's not meant to learn from Jesus. It's meant to trap him. And we see Jesus' wisdom. Uh, we see his wisdom first in the fact that he knew exactly what they were doing. It says he detected their craftiness. He knew what was going on. The flattery that they gave didn't do what they thought it would, right? They, they were trying to butter him up before they asked the question. Kind of, uh, maybe he'll let his guard down and then he'll slip up and say something that gets him in trouble. You're so smart. You only teach the truth. Uh, and so they're trying to, uh, you know, flatter him. But Jesus knows exactly what is happening. And so that doesn't work. And so what he does is he asks for a denarius. That was the coin from Rome of the day that was most commonly used. He says, show me a denarius. Bring me a denarius. Which first and foremost, the fact that they have to produce one shows in some sense they're submitted to Rome. Whether they like it or not, they're under the authority of Rome. They use the money from Rome. So he says, show me a denarius. Whose picture is on that? Whose inscription is written on that? And they answer, well, this is Caesar's. 
The Caesar of the day was Tiberius Caesar. The, the coin, the denarius of the day, had Tiberius's, Tiberius's image imprinted on it. And this was the inscription that, read, that was written across the coin. Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Caesar claiming to be the son of a god. And here, the true son of God asked them to produce this coin and is going to use that to teach them about authority, about submitting to God fully. He's looking at a coin with a poser on it. He's looking at a coin with a pretender on it. Now, a pretender who thinks it's true, a pretender who thinks he truly is the Son of a God, but Jesus, the Son of God, is going to use this and talk to them about their submission to authority. And so with his response, he doesn't fall into their trap. And it's not because he skirts the question. It's not because he sidesteps it. Uh, he answers in a way that more clearly and more truthfully approaches the issue. And so he says to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So in a sense, that coin has Caesar's image on it. Give it back to him. He can have it. And in another sense, if it has Caesar's image on it, he clearly has the authority to ask for taxes from his citizens. So give that back to Caesar. But never give to Caesar something that belongs to God. See, the image of the coin had the uh, picture of Caesar. And he says, you can give that to Caesar. However, we as humanity have the image of God, right? We are created in the image of God. We are to give ourselves only to God. We are to submit ourselves only to God, not to Caesar. God holds supreme authority over our lives. And so the result of his reply of render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God silences them. They can't say anything about this reply. They can't report to Rome that this new revolutionary is trying to overthrow the Roman government and now they can't even tear him down to the people because he's teaching them about submitting fully your lives to God. It is only God who we should give ourselves to. It is only God who we should worship. It is only God who we should hope in. And yet, as fallen human beings, we're still tempted to put our hope in a political party. As fallen human beings, we're still tempted to put our hope in a politician or a political agenda. And in a sense, that political idolatry is misplaced worship. But it's not just politics that we do this in our lives. We have misplaced worship 
in lots of ways. That can happen with our relationship with our spouse. Where we wouldn't say, well, I'm worshiping them, but how we interact with them, how we think about them may be a form of misplaced worship. It could happen with our children where we have misplaced worship. It could be in our careers. Countless ways in our lives we may have uh, disordered our hearts and have misplaced worship. And in all of those, any time we are doing that, in a sense, we are rendering to Caesar something that belongs solely to God. And so Jesus steps in and teaches us and reminds us, yes, there's worldly authorities that you submit to in one sense, but never submit to them something that belongs only to God. And His wisdom is instructing us about that. The second thing we see is this. Jesus teaches us that God has the power to resurrect the dead. Jesus teaches us that God has the power to resurrect the dead. Now, he's already demonstrated that by raising people back to, to life himself. Uh, but he's going to be asked a question and he's going to help clarify their understanding of the resurrection and teach that this is something that you can and should believe in. And so Luke 20, verse 27 through 40. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. And in the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven married her. Jesus told them, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die because they are like angels and are children of God since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. So the Sadducees come now with another question of this man. And Luke tells us up front, now these guys don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the life and life after this life. The question about the resurrection isn't because they want to learn from Jesus and they think Jesus may be able to teach them something that they don't understand, but that's what he turns it into. Their question is a question. It's a scenario that they've created, not a real scenario. 
It's a scenario that they've created that they think this can prove, because there's not an easy answer for this, this can prove that then the resurrection must not be real. In a sense, it's a, a way to trap, not to get Jesus into trouble, but to prove for the Sadducees, see, we're right, that there's no life after this life. Now, another detail about the Sadducees that is helpful for us in understanding Jesus' response. The Sadducees did not believe in all of the Old Testament Scriptures like most of the Jews did. The Sadducees only held to the books of Moses, the first five books, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of Scripture, the prophets, the history, the Psalms, they did not view those as Scripture. And they were going to use their Scripture to pose this question of Jesus. And they present this scenario. They say, well, Moses gave us a law. It's called the Leverite marriage laws. Moses gave us a law that said if a, a man is married and he dies and there are no children then in order to raise up children for the man who has died, that his brother will marry her and will marry the widow. And then they will produce a child together. And then that child will be a representative of the brother who is deceased. He will uh, represent that family. He will carry on that part of the family's line. And so they take that scenario and they say, so what about this? We've got this law for Moses. What about a scenario where that happens and the man dies, the widow has no children, and so then the second brother marries and the same thing happens all the way through and seven brothers marry this woman, but none of them produce a child with her. And they think they have proof that somehow this is going to disprove the resurrection. And they say, so who's, he, who's she going to be married to? If, if the resurrection's real, if there's some life that happens after this life, who would she be married to? Because she married every single person in that family line. She married all seven brothers. And they wait for his response, thinking, see, we've got proof that they can't prove what's going to happen after this. That must mean that there is no resurrection. And Jesus' answer is going to, one, help correct them in their understanding of the life to come and then prove to them from their own scriptures why they should believe it. And so he says, this age right now is different than the age to come. You're, you're coming at this from the understanding that this life must be exactly the same as the life to come. And so he says, that's not the case. People get married and are given in marriage here in this life, but that won't be the case in the life to come. There won't be a marriage in the life to come because they are like angels and will not die. Now, that does not mean that when we die, we become angels. It means that we will no longer face death. 
And he says, so there won't be a need for marriage in that age, in the resurrection age. And I think another reason for that is if you remember from Paul's teaching uh, on the, the intent behind marriage is to be an image of Christ and, and his relationship to the church. The church is going to be in the presence of their Savior. So we no longer need a shadow that's to point to the, uh, the Savior and the church because the church will be with him. So he corrects their misunderstanding. What you're saying is this age and that age must be identical, and that's not the case. But then he's going to go on and take the scriptures that they hold and use that to show them the scriptures you, you hold to, that you teach, talk about a resurrection. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus, Mark includes a uh, an additional statement from Jesus to the Sadducees here. That statement was, isn't the reason you don't understand these things because you don't know your scriptures and you don't know the power of God? That's a stinging rebuke. You don't know your scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so he's going to point them back to the books of Moses. He's going to point them back to Moses himself and say, here's where you can see that even in your scriptures, the only ones you hold to, that God is a God who has the power to resurrect. And so he ends up pointing back to the burning bush when Moses is introduced to God And God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He doesn't say, I was their God, but they're dead. They don't exist anymore. He says, I am Abraham's God. I am Isaac's God. I am Jacob's God. Because they are living. Jesus ends that statement saying he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Or some of your translations may take that word and translate it. All are living with him. Jesus says that the the resurrection is real. Scripture teaches it, that there is life after this life. God has the power to raise people from the dead, and he does it. We can and should believe in it. Jesus was teaching the the scribes this, the the Sadducees this. Now, some still dismiss the resurrection. They think, you know what? Nothing's going to happen after this life. It's just all over. This passage is a reminder from Jesus. No, there is a life to come. But for those of us who believe in and confess and hope in the resurrection, we're still tempted to live only for this age. We're still tempted to live only for our life, for our pleasures, just the best life now. That's what I'm here for. And Jesus is teaching we have an all-powerful God who will resurrect us at the end. You can believe this and you should believe it. 
The third truth from this text is this. Jesus teaches us to recognize his identity and authority as the Messiah. Jesus teaches us to recognize his identity and his authority as the Messiah. Now, he's talked to them multiple times about who he is. Uh, He's presented himself as the promised one. Uh, People were were singing songs, praising him as he came into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, They recognize this is the one. He's the promised one. And Jesus is going to help them see what you understand about the Messiah, what you're understanding about me, there's more. You're you're missing some things. So verse 41 to 44, Then he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. Then how can the Christ be his son? So Jesus now asked the question. He silenced the crowds, right? Silenced the scribes, silenced the uh, Sadducees. And so now he asked a question of the people to help them see that what they understand about the Messiah, but what they understand about his identity needs to be greater than what they currently think. And he asked the question, how is it that people say the Messiah is the son of David? Now, the answer to that is because that's what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. It's one of David's descendants. So that's the simple answer. He's not going to refute that. That is true. But he wants them to see that the Messiah is not just a son of David. There's something more about this son. There's something more about him that they need to know and they need to trust and they need to submit to. And so what he does is he points them to Psalm 110, a messianic psalm where David says these words, The Lord declared to my Lord. The second Lord there is talking about referencing the Messiah. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, speaking prophetically hundreds of years before Christ is going to come, recognizes there is one who is coming who is reigning and ruling beside God, who has a special relationship with the Father, and He is my Lord. I submit to Him. This is the King speaking and saying, the one to come is the true Lord. The one to come is the one that I can bow and submit to His authority. That was not common in the culture where a father or any other ancestor would recognize authority of one of their descendants. That was not acceptable customary practice. So for David to say that about the coming Messiah, he's admitting there is something different about him. He is reigning with God. He has the same authority as God. 
And of course, Jesus teaching this is pointing out, this is who I am. What you understand about the Messiah and what you understand about me is so much smaller than what is true. Yes, I'm a son of David, but I am also the son of God. That's where my authority comes from. He's answering that question that they asked last week. Who gave you the right to say these things? Who gave you the right to do these things? I have the right because of who I am. I have the right because of who my Father is. And so Jesus is answering. He is helping clarify His identity and clarify His authority. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke has been presenting Jesus over and over again. This is who our Savior is. Jesus here uses this to point them. What the people were understanding at the time was missing something. And so he tells them, I'm the one that has authority because I am the Son of God. And so the question for us today is, will you believe in Him? Will you submit to Him? If He is the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has the authority from the Father and with the Father, then will you submit to Him? Every time we see Jesus for who He is, we have an opportunity to believe it and to submit to who He is. The last thing we see in the text is this. Jesus teaches us to live in response to who God is. Jesus teaches us to live in response to who God is. So we have seen in His teaching here, we have a God with supreme authority that we're supposed to submit to. We have a God who is all-powerful, who will resurrect us from the dead. We have a God that loves us enough to send His Son for us. And so now this last section is a question for us. Well, how are we going to live in response to that? And Jesus is going to tell us one through a warning and one through commending. Luke 20, verse 45. While all the people were listening, He said to His disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Starting in chapter 21, he looked up and saw the rich dropping in their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. So the first short section, verse 45 to 47, we have the warning. You got two opportunities of how to live your life. Don't live it like the scribes. And how did the scribes live? They lived for themselves. They lived for their status. They lived for a title, a position. 
They were the ones that liked the way that they looked. They adorned themselves where they would be seen as they went through the towns. They wanted to make sure they had the best seats. They wanted to be, make sure they had the best titles that people would greet them with because they were living for themselves. It was about them and their status. And verse 47 tells us that they do it at the expense of others. They do it at the expense of the weakest in society at that time. That would have been the widows and the orphans. And so he says the, the scribes devour things from widows just in order to lift themselves up. Just in order to benefit themselves. Don't live like them. Don't live your life. Once you've seen who your God is, don't live your life just for yourself. And he says with that warning, these are going to receive a harsher judgment. There's a judgment to come for people who live this life only for their own benefit. And then we have him commending someone. And of course he commends one of the lowest in society to make his point. The rich people are dropping in their offerings. He doesn't say that that's wrong. They should give offerings. But he's going to commend something special about this poor widow. The poor widow drops in two tiny coins. They were the lepton is the, is the coin. The lepton was the smallest currency of the day. Uh, you could earn a lepton in about five minutes of minimum wage labor. It was insignificant, had literally almost no value. It would be like for us today, most of us as adults don't pick up pennies, unless you are superstitious and you think it's going to give you good luck. Uh, most of us don't pick up pennies. There's no value in it. Right? There, it literally doesn't hold much value in our world. This widow had two coins like that. And she puts them into the treasury. And Jesus says, did you see what she just did? Did you see the gift she just made? She made a greater gift than anybody else. Which from a worldly standpoint, we think, are you looking at the same scene, Jesus? Like, did you not see that guy drop that bag of gold in? Did you not see her come by with all those silver coins? How is it that this woman who put in two leptons, how is it that she's given more? They don't have to ask the question. Jesus clarifies immediately. The rich were giving out of their surplus. They were giving uh, out of all that they had, but this widow gave the last that she had. She gave up everything that she had. She had all, gave all she had to live on. The translation is like all of her livelihood. It was literally the last that she had. And she gave it in worship and service to the Lord. And Jesus commends her as a way, that's how we should live our lives. Not just with our finances. Our finances, sure. But give up everything you have in service to God. Give up everything you have 
to honor God. Let go of everything. Live your life for Him, not for yourselves. In His wisdom, Jesus teaches us how to live. Our all-wise Savior has instructed us in the ways of God. He taught us to submit ourselves to God's supreme authority. He taught us to believe in God's supreme power. The power that can even raise someone back from the dead. He continued to teach us about who He is and invite us to believe in Him and submit to Him because of who He is. And then He called us and invited us to serve God humbly with everything we have. Give it all up for the Lord because of who the Lord is. This is our God. This is our Savior and so our hearts need this wisdom today. So church, let's learn from Him. Let's learn from our all-wise Savior. Let's let His teaching continue to guide us. Let's let His Spirit continue to shape us into the people He wants us to be so that we can and do live out our lives in full submission to Him. Let's pray. God, You are so good to us. And so faithful. Thank you for your care. Thank you for your wisdom. Open our minds to the truth. Help us believe and help us live in response to the truth. We want to be used as individuals and as a church for your glory, God, to work for those purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.